bead of sweat that might be running down my forehead was the fear that Mark Crocker was about to preach my text. <laughs> Mark, thank you for reading the Word of God. I'm strategically pausing for just a moment such that the youngest of our ears can head on out. You'll understand why in a moment. In our home, I'm probably making more of this than I need to, but in our home, we, as the kids were super little, we were very, very careful with words that we allowed and did not allow in our home. And uh, there's a word that I'm going to use right now that is on the unapproved list, <laughs> you might say. So out of deference to parents, I um, want to make sure the little ears were out of reach. Obedience can be damning. Say that again. Obedience can be damning. Now, this is how pastor and author Dane Ortland, who wrote one of my favorite books in the last five or so years, Gentle and Lowly, began one of the best reads on Pastor Dan's bookshelf in 2022, his book entitled Surprised by Jesus. Ortland summarizes some of the surprising glimpses of Christ's subversive grace provided in each of the four canonical gospels. That's a fancy way of saying Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. He said, obedience can be damning. Notably, for our purposes this morning, in the Gospel of Matthew, Ortland alleges that we see the surprise of what he calls disobedient obedience. Jesus' definition of morality is counterintuitive, even contrary to all our expectations. In another place, and should probably send him some royalty for today's sermon because I lean heavily into that particular book. He says this, the Jesus of the Gospels defies our domesticated, play-by-the-rules morality. It was the most extravagant sinners of Jesus' day who, who received his most compassionate welcome. It was the most scrupulously law-abiding people who were the objects of his most searing denunciation. The point is not that we should therefore take up sin. It is that we should lay down the silly insistence on leveraging our sense of self-worth with an ongoing moral record. Better a life of sin with penitence than a life of obedience without it. The Jesus of the Gospels defies our safe, law-saturated, score-keeping existence. Close quote. If you haven't ever read a Dane Ortland book, let me encourage you to run out and get one. What kind of people belong to the kingdom of Jesus? What are the characteristics and the tendencies and even the virtues of those who, in fact, please the Lord, sometimes when they don't even know they are? Our next encounter with Jesus, number four, so far in our new series this year, introduces us to an anti-hero in the story of Christ, even to a negative example of the kind of individual whom God accepts, or rather, 
doesn't accept. That is the rich young ruler of Matthew 19, verses 16 to 30, but you can also find this same story in Mark chapter 10, verses 17 to 30, and also in Luke chapter 18, verses 18 to 30. This scene and this man stands apart from the crippled man and the demon-possessed man and even the sinful woman that we've met so far in our series. For shockingly, it is this vibrant, wealthy, influential, and highly religious individual who walks away from his divine encounter with Jesus, unchanged, sorrowful, and left in his sins. And if you're not gut-punched by that, you don't understand the subversive nature of grace. One scholar noted that the rich young ruler is possibly the first and only man who sincerely encountered Jesus and was not saved and changed. Our passage this morning is intentionally placed at the heart of Jesus' teaching on the real qualifications of Christian discipleship, found in Matthew chapter 18 to 20. Let me explain. Who gets in? Who is the greatest in God's kingdom? What is the standard for forgiveness and righteousness for those who want to walk with Jesus? Those are some of the questions operating behind the text of Matthew chapter 18 to chapter 20. These are those questions. And one of the things that we will see again today, and this is just sort of a, a teaching point for you, is that in order to fully excavate and understand the meaning out of many stories in the Gospels in particular, you often have to dig around the text, not just excavate what's in the text. And I think that's exactly what we find in the case of Matthew 19 and the story of the rich young ruler's encounter with Jesus. Now, I've selected Matthew's account specifically more so than Mark and Luke for a reason this morning, for a particular purpose, and it's because his account differs ever so slightly from that of Mark and Luke. For instance, in Matthew chapter 19, verse 16, we read this, and maybe you will catch this without me pointing it out, and behold, a man came up to him, that is to Jesus, saying, teacher, what good deed must I do to have eternal life? But in Mark and in Luke, and perhaps you already know this, the emphasis of the word good is on a different place. In Mark and Luke, we read this, and as he was setting out on his journey, a man, Luke calls him even a ruler, ran up and knelt before Jesus and asked him, good teacher, what must I do to inherit eternal life? What good deed in Matthew Good teacher, what must I do in Mark and Luke? Now listen, for now, I'll only note that each of the synoptic storytellers, again, that's another fancy seminary word that says Matthew, Mark, and Luke, three of the four gospel writers, they are looking together. That's what the word synoptic means. They are looking together at the story of Christ. They are doing so in a complementary, sorry, but not conflicting way. In other words, there is no substantive contradiction between these passages in any regard, but rather they offer a helpful multiplicity of perspective on this countercultural encounter with Jesus. In fact, Mark adds one poignantly beautiful note 
that I want to make sure that we don't miss. Matthew omits it for his own purposes in his narrative. But Mark puts verse 21 this way, and Jesus looked at him and loved him and said, you lack one thing, go sell all that you have and give it to the poor and you will have treasure in heaven and come and follow me. Again, remember, and this is going to be a neat discovery for some this morning, that Matthew's objective or aim, according to Ortland, is morality. Obedience can be damning. What does it truly mean to obey God's commandments? I mean, to really obey them. In relation to Jesus' teaching about true morality and the kingdom of heaven, Ortland writes this, The deepest distinction among human beings is not between the bad and the good, but between those who know they are bad and those who do not. Yet strangely, it is not the blatantly wicked who have the greatest difficulty seeing this, but the carefully obedient. Jesus consistently exposes the guilt of the moral and the scrupulous people by proclaiming that all men are equally sinful despite all their efforts, so that not by showing off their vaunted impeccability, but by confessing their guilt by repentance will they find the grace which erases it. Scrupulous obedience is, more often than we are aware, thinly veiled disobedience. Obedience, therefore, can be damning. Now you understand a sense of what he's saying. And look, if you ever were to find a poster child for the self-justifying, scrupulously obedient religious person, it was the rich young ruler. Let me read for you his important encounter with Jesus once more. Matthew 19, verse 6. And behold, a man came up to him, saying, Teacher, what good deed must I do to inherit eternal life? Now, please don't be upset with me, but I have to stop right there. And I will need to point out something to you. Matthew, I think, very purposefully wants us to draw a direct mental connection between this self-sufficient man and the kind of people who are actually qualified for entrance into God's eternal kingdom. Namely, the utterly insignificant and completely helpless people like little kids and children. And let me show you why I think that. Matthew 19 is in the middle of chapters 18 to 20, which are talking about characteristics of those who belong to the kingdom of heaven. And just before our passage, we find in Matthew 19, verse 13, these words. Then children were brought to him, that he might lay his hands on them and pray. The disciples rebuked the people. And Jesus said, let the little children come to me, and do not hinder them, for to such belongs the kingdom of heaven. And he laid his hands on them and went away. Again, I ask you, to what kind of people belong the kingdom of God? The answer is little children, helpless people, people that have to be brought 
to Jesus. They can't even run to him. So now look with me at the very beginning of our larger passage, Matthew chapter 18, beginning with verse 1. Here Jesus is on his way to Jerusalem and to his eventual death by crucifixion at the cross. His disciples are with him and he's teaching them about the true nature of what it means to follow him in faith. And he starts this way. At that time, the disciples came to Jesus saying, who is the greatest in the kingdom of heaven? And calling to him a child, he put him in the midst of them and said, truly I say to you, unless you turn and become like children, you will never enter this, the kingdom of heaven. Whoever humbles himself like this child is the greatest in the kingdom of heaven. This is what I mean when I say sometimes the understanding of a text is often helped, if not necessary, to excavate what's happening around a text, particularly in the Gospels. Did you catch Jesus' point? Well, let me make it clear. Heaven belongs to the humble, to the childlike, but not the childish. In order for us to rightly understand the point of the rich young ruler and his encounter with Jesus, we must contrast his self-sufficient, religiously obedient coming to Jesus with the remarkable reception that Jesus gives to those who are humble and so completely dependent and helpless that they have to be brought to him. It is not our righteous obedience, but our complete unrighteous condition that actually qualifies us for his kingdom. The Bible says in 1 Corinthians 1, 26 and following, For consider your calling, brothers. Not many of you were wise according to worldly standards. Not many were powerful. Not many were of noble birth. But God chose what is foolish in the world, the shame. The wise. God chose what is weak in the world to shame the strong. God chose what is low and despised in the world, even things that are not, to bring to nothing things that are, so that no human might boast in his presence. And because of him you are in Christ Jesus, Paul writes, who became to us wisdom from God, the righteousness and sanctification and redemption, so that as it is written, let the one who boasts, boast in the Lord. Again, it is not our obedience, but Christ's, which makes us acceptable to God. It is not the proud, but rather the humble, not those who insist on coming to Jesus on their own, but rather those who are carried or brought to him by others, by the Spirit himself who possess life of the kingdom. So back to Matthew 19 and verse 16. And this man's important dialogue with Jesus. Listen to what God's word says. And behold, a man came up to him saying, Teacher, what good deed must I do to have eternal life? And he said to him, Why do you ask me what is good? There is only one who is good. If you would enter life, keep the commandments. And then you need to sort of chuckle at this next line. Which ones? And Jesus said, you shall not murder, you shall not commit adultery, you shall not steal, you shall not bear false witness. Honor your father and mother, 
and you should love your neighbor as yourself. Here's laugh line number two. The young man said to him, all these I have kept, what do I still lack? And Jesus said to him, if you would be perfect, go, sell what you possess, and give it to the poor, and you will have treasure in heaven. Then come and follow me. And when the young man heard this, he went away sorrowful, for he had great possessions. And one of the biggest practical lessons for 21st century hearers, particularly in a modern American affluent, highly religious culture such as ours, perhaps one of the things that we need to understand from this passage is simply that the very first thing that we have to do in many of our evangelistic encounters with others is convince them that they are lost. Maybe you've learned that from Jordan Eister in Sunday school class of late. Have you ever had that experience? Well, Jesus breaks every conventional rule in the member uh, for the member of the modern megachurch greeting ministry. He breaks every rule for such a person. I mean, just look at the guy that he's encountering. This church prospect is enough to make even a gospel prosperity preacher like Stephen Furtick blush a little bit. He's young. He's influential. He's powerful. Luke calls him a ruler. He's wealthy. Not to mention, he's got one foot in the door of the church, so to speak. You could almost imagine the disciples saying, Jesus, what are you doing? This guy would be perfect for the new church website and for the brochure. You can almost feel that sort of misunderstanding. He's perfect, to which Jesus says, well, no, he's not. He's not perfect. Notice with me that having clearly been schooled in the Ray Comfort Way of, way of the Master Evangelism training course, Jesus brings the dialogue about good deeds to a discussion of the Decalogue, which is God's good word. Evidently, despite his apparent affluence and influence and youthfulness, this man was still searching for a sense of acceptance with God. I think we need to give him at least that much credit. The rich young man knew he was missing something. He didn't know what, but he had a suspicion that Jesus, a teacher, a powerful rabbi, had an idea. And by the way, it is the very nature of self-justifying religion to never do enough. Look at all that I've done. What more do I lack? Many of us know that experience. Teacher, what else do I need to do to please God? That is the very embodiment of self-righteousness, of man-made religion. What else must I do to please God, to possess peace within and a place in heaven with the Lord? What do I need to do? Tell me how to be saved. No, tell me how to save myself. Disobedient obedience is never satisfied. As I heard someone once say, religion says do, but the gospel says it is done. It is done. 
the big problem for this rich young ruler isn't that he was a bad guy, but that he was a morally good guy up unto a point. And he thought his inherent goodness was good enough to get him in. Now listen, of course, we mustn't misunderstand Jesus' words, particularly there in verse 17 where he says, if you would enter life, keep the commandments. We must, mustn't misunderstand what Jesus is saying to be some sort of suggestion that anyone, this man included, could do enough of anything to inherit eternal life. Jesus hasn't had a momentary lapse in gospel sense. One does not do anything, for example, to inherit a house. One does not do anything to inherit a fortune. One does not do anything to inherit eternal life. An inheritance is given. It is not earned. It is received. It is not achieved. Salvation, then, is received as a gift, not a reward to be earned or achieved. Therefore, what we see here is like a master physician of the soul, as Jesus so clearly is and was. He turns the tablets on this rich young ruler. And notice that in verses 18 and 19, Jesus actually skips all, like right past commandments 1 through 4. He just, he just blows past them. Starting instead with number 6, you shall not murder. And then number 7, you shall not commit adultery. And number 8... You shall not steal. And number nine, of course, you shall not bear false witness. But then he goes back to number five, honor your father and your mother. And then he sprinkles in what he'll say later in Matthew 22 is the second greatest command from Leviticus 19, verse 18. Oh, and love your neighbor as yourself. To which the rich young ruler has the audacity to reply, <laughs> all these I have kept. What do I still lack? Do you feel it yet? Are you the rich young ruler? Because I certainly know that I seem to meet him from time to time in the, in the mirror. There are various explanations behind why Jesus mentions these particular commandments and not others. But the point that Jesus, I think, is trying to press home with this poor soul is not found in these commandments that are mentioned. It's one of those experiences of where you have to read between the lines to really get the point. The punch is found in examining the commandments that aren't mentioned, not the ones that are. See, this religiously upright, morally self-justifying man was completely oblivious to the idolatry of his heart. And he was an idolater because we are all idolaters. The question is, what is our idol? Is it lust? Is it pride? Is it money? Is it approval? Is it good deeds? What is your idol? Well, verse 21 is Jesus' precision-guided bomb mercifully intended to obliterate this man's obvious idol. The Bible says, Jesus said to him, if you would be perfect. Now, there's more in that word than we have time to unpack, but it's a Greek word, teleos, which simply means mature. 
it means complete. We could actually render it that he would be, if you would be totally yielded to God, if you would be fully human the way that humans were meant to live before God, if you would be totally perfect and mature in your religion, go sell what you possess and give it to the poor and you will have treasure in heaven, which is what you say you want, and come and follow me. Do not murder, check. Do not commit adultery, check. Do not steal, got it, check. Do not lie, check. Honor mom and dad, sure. Love my neighbor as myself, check, and mate. Check and mate. Question, which commandment from the second table of the Big Ten did Jesus omit? And the answer, of course, is number 10. You shall not covet. You shall not covet. Bullseye. You see, verse 22 shows us actually what this man's God really was. When the young man heard this, he went away sorrowful, for he had great possessions. Bullseye. Money and stuff was his idol. Again, Dane Ortland clearly was helpful this week. He says, without him realizing it, Jesus had slipped in the first commandment, you shall have no other gods before me. He exposes this man's sin, not by showing him that he needed to give away his material possessions to follow God, but that his material possessions were his God. As Martin Luther has pointed out, there is no breaking of commandments numbers 2 to 10 without first breaking commandment number 1. If we, would dis if we dishonor our parents, we have broken commandments 1 and 5. Our God is independence. If we commit adultery, we have broken commandments 1 and 7. Our God is sex. If we love money, we have broken commandments 1 and 10. Our God is material possessions. The first commandment is the filter through which every other sin passes. And he's absolutely right. Whatever your idol is, it is an affront to number one, you shall have no other gods besides me. Someone said, to get, to get, you must give. To live, you must die. That the way up in Christ's economy is down and the first shall be last. What kind of people does God accept? It isn't the wealthy and the affluent or the influential. It isn't the powerful or even the religiously fanatical. Instead, the people who are the greatest in Christ's kingdom are those who are childlike. They are individuals who embrace their emptiness, who admit their ineptitude, who gladly surrender their idols in exchange for the grace of Jesus. As James himself puts it, in James 4, verse 4 and following, you adulterous people, do you not know that friendship with the world is enmity with God? Therefore, whoever wishes to be a friend of the world makes himself an enemy of God. Or do you suppose it is no purpose that the scripture says he yearns jealously over the spirit that he has made to dwell in us? And if James stopped there, we'd all just be 
wringing our hands. But he doesn't. He says, but he gives more grace. Therefore, it says, God opposes the proud, but gives grace to the humble. Submit yourselves, therefore, to God. Resist the devil, and he will flee from you. Draw near to God, and he will draw near to you. Cleanse your hands, you sinners, and purify your hearts, you double-minded. Be wretched and mourn and weep. Let your laughter be turned to mourning and your joy to gloom. Humble yourselves before the Lord, and he will exalt you. That's good gospel preaching. In other words, it's not your goodness which qualifies you for glory. It's Jesus' goodness and his alone. It's your admission that are the hands of faith receiving such a gift. But it is not your goodness. It is only the goodness of goodness himself who shed his blood for us. Well, notice beginning in verse 23, Jesus begins to explain and unpack the moral behind the surprising and sorrowful story of the rich young ruler. And part of the point is that the call to follow Jesus Christ cannot be purchased with money, but it does cost us everything. In other words, the radical nature of belonging to God's kingdom cannot be passed on from person to person, but it requires us to be born again by the Spirit. The way to receiving God's heavenly approval is by admitting that you are completely unworthy of it and undeserving. And when you are there, you are near. Again, to Jesus' own explanation of why this man actually walked away sorrowful, choosing instead to cling to his little g-gods of gold and money, rather than receiving the true blessing of the kingdom, we read these words in Matthew 19, 23. And Jesus said to his disciples, Truly I say to you, only with difficulty will a rich person enter the kingdom of heaven. Again, I tell you, it is easier for a camel to go through the eye of a needle than for a rich person to enter the kingdom of God. When his disciples heard this, they were greatly astonished, saying, Who then can be saved? But Jesus looked at them and said, With man this is impossible, but with God all things are possible. Then Peter said, typical fashion, See, we have left everything and followed you. What then will we have? And Jesus said to them, Truly I say to you, in the new world, when the Son of Man will sit on his glorious throne, you who have followed me will also sit on 12 thrones, judging the 12 tribes of Israel. And everyone who has left houses and brothers or sisters or father or mother or children or lands, note that word, for my name's sake will receive a hundredfold and will inherit eternal life. But many who are first will be last and the last first. This is astonishing. Jesus' enigmatic word picture of a camel, which was the largest animal found in that part of the world at that point in time, passing through the eye of a needle, the smallest opening readily identifiable in the minds of his first century hearers, simply illustrates the impossibility of man inheriting eternal life based on his own moral goodness and effort. Don't make more out of the camel than need be. That's the simple point of the matter. You see that big animal over there, and you see that little tiny opening over there? If you think you can get yourself to God, that camel's got to get its way through that needle eye. That's just all that Jesus is saying there. 
It's an utter impossibility. What kind of people qualify for eternal life? I've been asking you. The contrary to conventional wisdom, either the first or 21st century for that matter, it's not the rich, the young, and the influential, but rather the poor and the childlike and the humble who inherit the kingdom of God. And that's the point of the rich young ruler in a story. Isaiah 66, verses 1 and 2 declares powerfully, Thus saith the Lord, Heaven is my throne, and the earth is my footstool. What is the house that you would build for me? And what is the place of my rest? All these things my hand has made, and so all these things came to be, declares the Lord. But this is the one to whom I will look, he who is humble and contrite in spirit and trembles at my word. You want to gain Heaven's attention, cultivate a heart of humility. Cultivate a heart of humility. In the first century, material blessings themselves were believed to be a sign of divine favor and approval. God has smiled upon the wealthy and the one with many possessions. That's the mentality of a first century person, particularly in this region of the world. If anyone was close to God's kingdom, Jesus' disciples were not wrong in what they were thinking in terms of conventional wisdom. It was the haves, certainly not the have-nots. But Jesus' kingdom is a different kind of kingdom. And his rule is a different kind of rule. So he turns it on its head, on this line of thinking on its head. And he says, he said, this is what Dane Ortland says in terms of that thinking is, it's worse than you think. And so much better than you can imagine. According to your intuitive, natural, moralizing, domesticated, get-what-you-work-for understanding of the way you think God relates to people, yes, this is impossible. But with God, according to his wild, lavish, all-out-of-proportion, get far more than you can ask for as long as you don't try to pay for it yourself, understanding of the way God relates to his people, all things are possible. He concludes with this quote, Above the impossibilities of our own making stands the omnipotence of God's grace. And I just love that. There is so much in this passage that I do not have time for this morning. The last few verses themselves of Jesus' interaction with Peter and the disciples about them ruling over Israel, that alone is a fascinating study and a worthy of its own sermon someday. But I want to bring our attention at the close to simply the last line of this text. And I want to show you how verse 30 of Matthew 19 functions to sum up the encounter of the rich young ruler and to point us to the coming parable of the laborers in the vineyard. That's why I asked you to mentally note the word land a moment ago. And here's the precept. Grace doesn't give us what we deserve. Grace gives us what we need. That's basically the moral to the story of the rich young ruler in Jesus. Grace doesn't give us what we deserve. Grace gives us what we need. And I absolutely know it's the moral to the story of the parable of the laborer in the vineyard. Let me explain. Those who qualify for God's kingdom are not the independent, the self 
deserving, but rather they are those who are ultimately accepted by God and swept up to his incredible story of a great reversal by grace. Notice two verses, Matthew 19, verse 30, and Matthew 20, verse 16, and how they are mirror images to one another. Matthew 19, 30 says this, but many who are first will be last and the last first. And then after the parable of the laborer and the vineyard, it says, so the last will be first and the first will be last. In response to Peter's plea for insight and maybe for some security and confirmation of all they've left behind and sacrificed in view of their following Jesus and as an illustration of the total inability and complete and utter dependence of those who would receive eternal life by the grace of Jesus Christ, he tells this amazing story. And I close with it. It's the story of Matthew 20 verses 1 and following. For the kingdom of heaven is like a master of a house who went out early in the morning to hire laborers for his vineyard. And already, if you were a first century hearer, you would say, what kind of master of a house himself goes out early in the morning at at all to hire laborers? He has other people for that sort of thing. Well, that's just the kind of God we serve. After agreeing with the laborers for a denarius a day, a day's pay a day, he sent them into his, his vineyard. And notice verse 3, and going out about the third hour, he saw yet others standing idle in the marketplace. And to them he said, you go into the vineyard too, and whatever is right, I will give you. And so they went. And going out again about the sixth hour and the ninth hour, he did the same. And about the eleventh hour, for our reckoning, it would be about getting close to 6 p.m. in the day. He went out and found yet others standing, and he said to them, why do you stand here idle all day? And they said to him, because no one has hired us. And he said to them, you go into the vineyard too. So at 6 a.m., the owner of the vineyard has gone out. He's gone out at 9 a.m. He's gone out at 11 a.m. He's gone out at 1 p.m. He's gone out at 4 p.m., and he goes again at just before 6 p.m. And when evening came, here's the shocking part. The owner of the vineyard said to his foreman, so we knew he had one, call the laborers and pay them their wages, beginning with the last and up to the first. And when those hired about the 11th hour came, each one of them, each of them received a denarius. Each one of them, regardless of when they entered the vineyard, received the same amount. Now, when those hired first came, they thought they would receive more, but each of them also received a denarius. And on receiving it, they grumbled at the master of the house, saying, these last worked only an hour, maybe some of them, if that, and you have made them equal to us who have borne the burden of the day and the scorching heat. But he replied to them, friend, I am doing you no wrong. Did you not agree with me for a denarius? Take what belongs to you and go. I choose to give to this last worker as I give to you. Am I not allowed to do what I choose with what belongs to me? Or do you begrudge my generosity? So the last will be first and the first last. Do you understand grace a little better now? Who's nearer the kingdom of God? 
a rich man or a little child? The world would say a rich man, of course. But the word says a little child, of course. Who's more deserving of a day's pay? The laborer who's hired at six in the morning or who's hired at five in the evening? Well, again, conventional wisdom would say, of of course it's the one who has been working all day long. But heaven says, not so fast. Not so fast. Our sense of morality and moral uprightness points in one clear direction, but mercifully, friends, mercifully, the economics of divine grace and of God's kingdom point in a vastly different direction. And I wonder how clearly we understand that. Grace doesn't give us what we've earned, but it does give us what we need. Grace is amazing to those of us who know we need it. And it is the most offensive thing in all the world to those who think we don't need it at all. So I ask you this morning, I plead with you this morning, don't walk away because you have great possessions but rather see that the greatest possession is right in front of you. His name is Jesus. Reach out to him in faith, and you will inherit eternal life. Let's bow in prayer. Almighty God and Father, we give you praise and thanks for the clarity of your word and the power contained in it. And I pray, O Holy Spirit, that you right now would bring conviction, a sense of comfort, and a sense of prompting the soul, prompting the spirit of anyone that needs to do business with Christ this morning, as we thank you in Jesus' name.